Welcome to the Medspiration Podcast, where we discuss medical science and evidence-based tools for daily living. I'm your host, Dr. Nav Badesha, and this is episode number 28 with Dr. Bruce Perry. Of all the stories I've ever done in my life and all of the experiences I've ever had and people I've interviewed, this story has had more impact on me than practically anything I've ever done. One of the things I think that I learned from the writing of this book with Bruce is the timing of adversity makes a huge difference in determining overall risk. The difference between being 17 and being three when something happens. And also this thing struck me so much. If in the first two months of life, a child experienced high adversity with minimal relational buffering, but was then put into a healthy environment for the next 12 years, their outcomes were worse than the outcomes of children who had low adversity and healthy relational connection. Wow in the first two months, but then spent the next 12 years with high adversity, which is to say the child who has only two months of really bad experiences does worse than the child with almost 12 years of bad experiences, all because of the timing of the experience. If nobody gets anything else from this book, that's what I hope the world understands, that what you're saying in front of your youngest, 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 youngest children causes lifelong issues. I think what you and I want people to know from this book is that no matter what happened to you, it's not too late. You do have a chance to rewrite the script. And you talk about something called post-traumatic wisdom, using all of these experiences, good and bad in your life, to allow you to have post-traumatic wisdom instead of stress about it. What does that mean? Basically, that's referring to the experience where you've been able to kind of get through adversity and you're now at a safer place in your life and you can look back and reflect and take what you've learned and use that to see the world differently. You use your pain and transform it to power and help other people. I think of the most transformative people I've ever known, every single one of them had personal pain and traumatic experience that was a core element of who they became. A lot of people, when they think about trauma and and the effects of trauma, they focus on all the negative things, which definitely can happen. There's definitely risk. But you can actually learn from these experiences, grow from, from these experiences, and you figure out ways to carry the pain that don't interfere with your ability to be loving, to be productive, to be creative. And in fact, in many cases, I think that that pain becomes fuel for the productivity and the creativity. I grew up on welfare, poor, uh, a lot of negative experiences, sexual abuse and all of that. The thing that has been the most freeing to me is being able to be truthful about it, to own it, and to not only own it, but to use it as leverage for growth for myself. You know, the thing that I didn't get in in growing up is what I most wanted to give as an adult. There's a beautiful spiritual that we sing in the black church. I wouldn't take nothing for my journey now, for my journey now, for my journey now. And that's how I feel about my life and I want everybody else to embrace that for their own. That everything that has happened to you can also be a strength builder for you if you allow it. And you take that pain once you have acknowledged what it is and where it came from and the people who did whatever they did to you. That is the past and how you're willing to now take that pain and use it as your own personal power is what post-traumatic wisdom is all about. What's the number one skill you feel like human beings should learn to master? Emotional regulation. Because if we don't have the power to regulate our feelings around a situation, an environment, something that happens in events, then that event has power over us as opposed to us over that moment. And if it has power over us to where we react so strongly, we need to ask ourselves, why am I so triggered? Where is that wound? That's a wound somewhere. Where is that wound? And how can I start the healing journey? I'm not saying that things are gonna happen in life and you're never gonna feel something, but just not react and be overwhelmed emotionally. 
to where it takes you away from love and takes you away from your mission. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a blessed day. Thank you so much for pressing play and tuning into the Medspiration podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Bruce Perry. He is the world leading expert on childhood trauma and brain development. You might be familiar with his work because he last joined us on the Medspiration podcast in episode number 11. Since we last spoke, he's published a New York Times bestselling book with Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You. This book just sold over 1 million copies and I could not think of a better way to wish each of you a happy 2023 than to share this carefully crafted conversation. The main theme is self-regulation. My intention in this interview was to lay out a simple, neuroscientifically backed step-by-step process on how anyone can transform PTSD into post-traumatic wisdom, and I really feel like we accomplished that with this episode. I'm including the timestamps in the description below, which highlights 22 specific topics that Dr. Bruce Perry and I tackled. The brain develops in a step-by-step process, or in sequences and Dr. Perry's neurosequential model of therapeutics takes into account how the brain naturally develops and then it introduces evidence-based tools into the developmental process that can help children and adults rewire even the most traumatized brains for adaptive success. This model is now starting to be applied in schools. That's why before we begin, I'm going to share a clip from Henry Hill's school which won the Excellence in Wellbeing Education Award for how they use Dr. Bruce Perry's brain sciences to help teach children who've had difficult childhoods. If you'd like to add to this conversation, please feel free to message or tag us on Instagram. The handle is at Medspiration. If you enjoyed today's conversation or if you learned something new, please consider subscribing and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts leave a review and let us know what your favorite parts of this episode were. It really would mean the world to our team. And without further ado, let the medspiration begin. As far as neuroscience goes, it's not that these kids don't have the ability to achieve academically. It's that you actually need to be calmed first before you can intake any kind of cognitive content. You got four parts of your brain and the bottom is your brainstem. So if you're really down or angry, if your parents are arguing, then you're scared and then that means you're in your brainstem. But then if you come to school and then you do yoga, it'll make you go all the way up to the cortex. So the neurosequential model has uh, three R's. So the first one is regulate. So you need to be calm before you can do anything else. Second one is to relate. So there has to be some type of relationship before you can begin to do the third R, which is reason. Dr. Bruce Perry, welcome back to the Medspiration Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Nav. Oh man, it's great to it's great to see you again. So last time we spoke back in 2019, I was a first year family medicine resident at the time. And it's safe to say a lot has changed in the world since that time. So last time we touched base, we talked about your your older book, uh, still one of the best books I've ever read, uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Incredible piece of work, uh, something that I've shared with my patients and other clinicians. Now, since then, you've published a book with Oprah, and that is What Happened to You? Uh, it's been pretty incredible. So I just want to start by asking you, what, what led to this collaboration between you and Oprah? Well, I, you know, found, believe it or not, I've known Oprah for 30 years. So yeah. um, I used to live in Chicago. And, you know, when I was even training, um, I'm not, a, I kind of know the story, but it's really long. But I ended up getting to know Oprah. And um, from that time forward, we would frequently have conversations. She'd reach out to me when she had some issues going on. Once in a while, I was on her show. Um, and, uh, over the years, you know, we got to know each other pretty well. And after she stopped her show, she became a special correspondent for 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. And there was, she was doing a feature on a program in Milwaukee and she had decided to focus on that because that's where part of where she grew up was in Milwaukee. So, uh, when she went there and they said, oh yeah, yeah, we're, we're using Dr. Perry's program. They're like, oh, I know Bruce. So she called me up 
They said, do you want to be on 60 Minutes? I'm like, not really. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, come on. I'm like, okay. So um, I was one of the talking heads in that 60 Minutes piece. And then her publisher saw that and said, we should have Bruce write a book. And wow. I said to him, I said, I've already written a book. Nobody's going to read my book. But, but, you know, people are interested in this. In, and this got so much attention because of Oprah. And I said, Oprah should write a book. And she said, I don't know anything about this. I said, but we've been talking about this for years. And I said, why don't we just record some of our conversations and we can turn that into a book? And she said, okay. So we, I went to her, uh, I guess she calls it a ranch, but it's her place in Hawaii. And we sat down on, you know, on the, her front porch and uh, recorded a number of conversations over a four-day period of time, and then that was transcribed, and I sort of crafted that into the book. Well, I'm just grateful that you guys ended up doing that. Jumping straight into the first chapter, Making Sense of the World, you, you talked about Mike. He had PTSD, and you're trying to explain it in lay terms to his partner. So how did you explain PTSD to his partner? Well, you know, part of the challenge and you know what this is like being a physician, is that we know all of this complex physiology that is under underneath a symptom. And I was struggling at how to translate that and communicate that clearly to somebody who has no background in the neurosciences. And, and honestly, even at that point, I had not yet connected all the dots about the neurobiology of the stress response and the sensitization of the stress response, and then the clinical manifestation. Mm -hmm. It was because it was pretty young in the history of the the weaving together the neurosciences with psychiatry. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was one of those things where, as I was thinking about how to explain this, I was actually starting to connect dots myself. So I I, I started out by drawing an upside down triangle which I always use to kind of represent the brain. And I said, all right, so here's your brain. And we have these systems that are involved in the stress response. And I, yeah, there, exactly. Yep. And then I sort of, I drew what I ended up calling sort of these core regulatory networks, which everybody who's trained as a neuroscientist or trained in medicine, you know, that's norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, these, these, these systems that originate in lower parts of the brain. And then I said, well, you know, the reason he has this symptom and this symptom, this symptom isn't because he has three different disorders. He has one problem. And there is a network that is involved in regulating all of these things. And and as I was starting to figure this out, I'm like, oh, that's actually that explains why these people have increased risk for heart disease and diabetes. And I was like, going, oh, I got to look into this. You know? Oh, yeah. So, but basically that what I was trying to explain to him and to her was the phenomenon of evocative cues. And a lot of people who are listening probably have heard that, that, uh, you know, it, it's been represented in the media a lot and in, in television shows and movies that let's say that you were in combat and you're, you're back home, you're safe and you hear a car backfire and, and it will Put your brain back into that place, back into the firefight or the ambush. And that's a real phenomenon. It's not just sort of a theatrical trick. That really does happen with people who have had bad experiences, is that they can have unconscious reminders of that experience and then find themselves having feelings and thoughts as if they were present in that moment. And so I was trying to explain it. And even though I knew this and I've been taught this and I've been studying this, it really hadn't dawned on me that this sequential processing of information in the brain really explains a lot of things about human behavior. That, there, you know, even though it was then, I think it was like 30 years after the Korean War, which is where he would, had been in combat, his brain was still acting like he was under threat. And I, and I kept thinking, well, it's, uh, you know, that's crazy. I mean, it's 
30 years later. He should know he's safe. But then I, as I explained it, I realized, oh yeah, the lower part of the brain, the first part of the brain that gets that incoming signal does, can't tell time. And so, of course, it's going to react the way it should react based upon its experience. So if you've been in combat, you need to take cover. You need to get ready to survive. And so what was happening is 30 years later, he would have something that would remind him of combat or remind his brain of combat. And his brain would activate the stress response and he would be feeling distressed, having these intrusive ideations and feel incredibly fearful. And then he'd manage it by drinking. And of course, that leads to a whole set of other problems that, you know, you can't, not a lot of jobs tolerate people that are drinking a lot. Yeah. And, and not a lot of relationships are going to go well if you're drinking a lot. And so his relationships were falling apart. His work kind of fell apart and, and he never quite understood what was going on. And so I think that when I drew that upside down triangle thing and sort of traced what was happening, I actually had the realization that, oh, it's sequential processing of information in the brain wow. that's underneath these evocative cues. And, and that's why uh, you can't stop it. You can't reason through it because you're actually distressed before the reasoning part of your brain even gets the information. Wow. Going back to Mike, there was a moment in time when he was in the Korean War where he was trying to survive. And he mentioned that whether he was asleep, he couldn't sleep too deeply because he could die at any moment. And when he was awake, he was constantly on edge. So during yeah. that time, it's it's safe to say that his he was hyper aware. He was hypersensitized to that moment. And um, yeah. it was necessary. It was a necessary adaptive thing that his brain was doing at that time. But 30 years later, even though he, even though that threat was removed, his brain would still catch himself in that situation. And I, the example yeah. you guys use in the book is, I think it was like a motorcycle. Somebody was just revving the engine and he heard something and it triggered those memories. And then he ended up like on the ground when he was with his partner and he, I think he was crying at the time. Just seeing how that can trigger the brain and kind of take him back to that. Do you think once he became aware of that, once his partner became aware that, oh, this is a post-traumatic stress, once the awareness comes to that, do you think that makes a significant difference and it can actually lead them in a better direction after that? Yeah, you know, that I think that that's, that's one of the most powerful things about understanding mechanism. Mm -hmm. is that we, we kind of forget that a lot of times, you know, after something, after any event, or what makes it most uncomfortable is the uncertainty, the unknown, and that prolongs the anxiety and the distress. You think I'm going crazy. You think there's something wrong with me. But if you, you know, every, if something like that happens, you can get back to a normal level of regulation quicker by going, oh, you know what? It happened again. Uh, that yeah. my brain's kind of doing what it's going to do, and so there's two two parts to that knob. You can you can get back towards normal quicker because you're not, you know, you're not s sort of ruminating and having this sort of free floating anxiety about it. But you can also anticipate that, like, all right, I'm going to this picnic. It's the Fourth of July. I, there's going to be fire, you know, I'm going to hear fireworks. Kids are going to be throwing out, you know, lighting firecrackers behind me. I, I just know that it's going to be a, a tough thing. So I'm going to basically be prepared or I'm going to, you know, do, you know, it's a family reunion. I'm going to just go in and say hi to everybody. And then before it gets dark, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. You know, you so you plan around stuff where you think you may run into one of your evocative cues, and the, both of those things gives you more what we call agency. You know, you're more in control of what's happening to you. And this is great because of the title of the book. But initially, some individuals that might be struggling with childhood trauma or PTSD, they may not know what's going on. They may be repeating the same repetitive behaviors, but then being like, "What's wrong with me?" 
Why can I not hold these relationships? Why am I struggling at work? Why is it that anything that I love, I'm not able to hang on to and I might self-sabotage it? And in my own clinic, once I'm able to explain the mechanism and explain that these are triggering events and these are recurring things, there is a, a shift in narrative. That's where the name of the book is really important. And I remember you're actually the one that inspired Oprah to start using the the term, what happened to you? Why did you use that wording? What happened to you? Rather than what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me? You know, it's, I, I grew up in, uh, you know, North Dakota, hunting and fishing and learning a ton about animal behavior. And a big part of what I just sort of got built into my brain was when you see tracks, you're always trying to reconstruct what how did this, you know, what was going on? What happened that led to this animal being here at this time? And and then as I learned how to read, I got really, really fascinated by histor history and historical figures. And so I actually wanted to be a history teacher at one point. Cool. And so I, as I got older and older and older, my my whole, all of my thinking was very sensitive to, and it was very aware that the present is basically uh, the way it is because of something that happened in the past. And so I brought that in that sort of that perspective into college. And then I was just by luck, my freshman advisor and mentor became, it was, his name was Seymour Levine. He was a pioneer in studying the relationship between early life stress and the development of the brain. And so I just sort of, even by the time I had an academic thought, I was very well aware of the fact that your current functioning depends upon your previous history. And, you know, in medicine, one of the most, you know, I, I'll never forget that, uh, you know, you've, and I'm sure you've had some of these wonderful uh, old experienced clinicians. They will tell you that the most important part of your, your assessment is history, mm -hmm. right? History is always like 85% of making a correct diagnosis. And it's the history of the onset of symptoms and the sequence and what happens when. And, and once you sort of hear that, then you can see, oh, I understand why your current functioning is A, B, or C. And so all of that stuff combined to, to have for me to just be a developmentalist by nature. And what that really means is that when you see somebody who's struggling or somebody who has a certain belief, rather than saying, well, you're messed up, why do you think that way? That's crazy. I always would ask, like, well, how did you get, where did that come from? Like, how would, how would somebody with all of these things actually have that set of beliefs? Where would that come from? Yeah. And when you find, when you hear the stories, you know, you kind of get to know somebody, you go, oh. I get it. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And that, the beautiful thing about it is stuff does make sense Yeah. Only. when you know the story, right? You know, when you know somebody's story, you know, you have, it's much easier to, to be a little bit of appreciative of what they're struggling with, why they might do something that's kind of impulsive or foolish. And and that's a really good starting point if you're the therapist, right? Yeah. Or or a teacher or a friend or anybody, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a lot where that came from. And I, I have always been focused on history, you know, the, the personal history, the history of a person's people, because that says a lot about what that child is going to grow up with and what, what they hear and what they see modeled and and what does their culture do? Uh, what are their childhood practices? And how do they view the world? And because a lot of that's going to be absorbed by the developing child. And so I'm really interested in transgenerational aspects yeah. of culture, transgenerational aspects of health, and transgenerational aspects of trauma. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I always talk, I, I talk about it all the time. I mean, if you want to understand foreign policy, You've got to be a, you got to understand the development of the brain. Mm -hmm. You need to understand the history of peoples. And then once you do, you go, wow, that makes complete sense that uh, things are messed up in Northern Ireland or things are messed up in, you know, in all, any place you look, you go, oh, that makes sense. 
even in the South, you know, I grew up in North Dakota, which is in the northern part of the United States. And honestly, I didn't even think about the Civil War. You know, you just don't think about the Civil War. We, we kind of, you know, we thought about the West and settling the West and that kind of stuff. And then I moved down to Texas, and there were people that were literally like preoccupied with the Civil War. Yeah. And I was like, wow, what's, what's that all about? My son, he went to lunch. You know, he just, we moved when he was going into high school, and he didn't know anybody. And so he sits down uh, with a bunch of his kids are all from Texas and he sits down and it's clear that he's not from Texas. And, um, you know, ultimately he became good friends with all of them. But in the beginning, he came back uh, like a week into school. He came back and said, man, these people are weird. I said, what do you mean? (laughs) Well, one kid came up to me and said, you may have won the war, but we had better generals. He said, I don't even know what he's talking about. (laughs) He's talking about the civil war, a high school kid, you know? I just, it was weird anyway. So it, it, it really, so the civil war to this day yeah, has, has impact on the ethos and the way of living in the South. Another question you pose is what didn't happen to you? What's the earliest we know that neurodevelopment can be impacted? You know, it's, it's interesting, actually, even preconception. And uh, this is I, where I, the whole area of oh, epigenetics okay. comes in, right? And so, and again, we're learning this in other areas of medicine that that the the proteins and the chemical conformations that control the expression of genes can be modified in one generation, and and that can be carried into the next generation, and it's an experience-based change in functional capability. And so we know that if you have a grandparent that was significantly traumatized and or lived under conditions of unpredictability, starvation, uh, you know, near genocidal experiences, that there will be a difference in the way your DNA will be expressed uh, with regards to the stress response system and certain uh, cascades of the, your metabolic system. And uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, it's one of the great protective aspects of, of our species. Mm-hmm. That your brain, your brain uh, and the rest of your body is always trying to sort of help you adapt to whatever the environmental circumstances are. Yeah. So you're trying to get a head start, right? If you know that you're going to be born into an environment that's calorie depleted, you want to have a head start as an infant to not rec- to basically ha- metabolize in a certain way and store calories in a very efficient way, which means that you get fat, you know, you store fat very efficiently. Whereas if you are have a calorie rich environment in, in the previous three generations, you don't store fat the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a, again it's one of these really interesting phenomenon related to the adaptability of our species. And so aside from epigenetics, we know that in the first trimester, even these core regulatory networks, the cells that are going to become those really important neurotransmitter networks in your brain, they're starting to develop and organize and they're very sensitive to experience. So intrauterine alcohol, stress and distress of the mother, these things can influence uh, how these cells migrate, how they differentiate, and then ultimately how they function both as neurotransmitters, but also as what we call morphogens. So if, if you imagine this upside down triangle brain again, when you're born, all of this stuff up here is undeveloped. And the way it's going to develop, the signals to develop a certain way come from these core regulatory networks. And so if you've had some pattern of stress experience that alters these systems so that they send different kinds of signals, you're going to get altered development in all parts, higher parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. And we, we see this every day, right? We see kids that had high intrauterine risk, and let's say they ended up in foster care, they're adopted, and people say, well, we adopted him when he was four days old. You're like, I know. Yeah. But he still has trouble socializing and learning to read when he's in the first grade. 
and it's related to what happened in utero. Yep. It's not because you were a bad parent. Mm-hmm. It's it's because he had a very sensitive, uh, you know, development of his central nervous system that was impacted by trauma. Does that mean that that an individual with a, a well-regulated brain, if, if you're having good sleep-wake cycles, good rhythms, maybe a loving relationship from the start, and maybe even previous generations that was passed yep. down, and they were able to become resilient through the things that they experienced, they can have a higher level of functioning? Or now, is it possible for those that may have had trauma to be higher functioning as well? How does that work? Well, you can have both. You know, it's the interesting thing is that the the brain will organize and develop in some fashion, mm-hmm. no matter what you do earlier. And if you if you have early developmental experiences that that you're you're suggesting that are characterized by attentive, attuned, responsive caregivers and you don't have any of these developmental insults, these systems that you have, you, you basically have an increased probability that you can express your genetic potential to be bright, creative, you know, in all kinds of things. You'll, be, you'll have a higher probability of being productive, creative, compassionate, and so forth. Good thing. If you have these developmental insults that alter these systems, it doesn't mean that you can't be creative and that you can't be productive. It just means that it tends to be harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you, it, it requires more healing to kind of get to the point where you can express some of these potentials. Now, with that said, there's a very interesting phenomenon that takes place. And again, and we, we talk about it in the book that stress, is really a very positive thing for a person. It's just the controllability of the stress, the predictability, and the dosing if it's moderate. So when you go to medical school, it's stressful, right? I mean, there's a lot of stressors. But ultimately, most of it is somewhat predictable, and it's moderate. And by the end of it, you have a certain level of resilience that when there's a big crisis and everybody else is falling apart, you know how to stay calm, put the IV in, get the cardiac, you know, help save somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And that's a really positive thing. It's a form of post, I don't want to call it traumatic, but it's, it's post sometimes traumatic. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's an example of where stressful experiences with the, in the right way lead to improved strength, capability, competence, and confidence. And and so the irony is if you have a life where you don't have uh, a little bit of distress and dysregulation, and you learn how to t- live with that feeling of discomfort, you're not going to have the same array of life experiences that will express other potentials. So if you look at the most creative people in our society, you look at the most productive people in our society, almost all of them have had some form of developmental challenge, Yeah. whether it's trauma or something else, loss, trauma, uh, you know, really, it, it, and I think in some ways it creates post-traumatic hunger. Yeah. It creates post-traumatic wisdom. You know, there's post-traumatic, you know, there's post-traumatic growth. Absolutely. So, yeah. And I think it's something that we, you know, I, 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 not that I think that we should intentionally traumatize people, but I think that we should recognize that when we work with people that have had trauma, we can help them focus on the parts of this where this experience gives them a unique perspective on life that mm. is painful, but you can't get any other way. Yeah, I think Oprah is such a great example of that herself, having gone through all the childhood trauma she did. But then she was able to you know, kind of turn those things into her greatest strengths and also highlight 
Like, she's such a unique person. There's no one else like Oprah on Earth. Those things may have shaped her into who she is. And, you know, maybe exactly. she did something specific. Now, does this mean that it is possible to rewire or build a new pathway in the brain to evolve from maybe behaviors or post-traumatic stress? Is that possible? Absolutely. You know, that's the beauty of the brain. I mean, again, the brain is this, the human brain, is remarkably malleable and the brains of other species are also malleable but there's something unusual and unique about some areas of the of the human brain particularly the cortex it's more malleable we can absorb more bits of information per second than any other species and and that makes us capable of storing more information and changing more more than any other species and Mm -hmm. so it, it there's there's always hope, you know, you can always build, um, you can create new neural networks that will bring new capabilities all the time, which That's, is a really positive thing. Absolutely. I agree. There's a doctor called the holistic psychologist. Her name's Dr. Nicole LaPera, and she has such a cool way of wording these things. So she calls it the wounded inner child. So once once an individual who's been through trauma can identify with their wounded inner child and understand why their child is wounded, then they may open up an ability to have newer resources. So when they are in that same situation, they can regulate themselves faster than they used to be able to. And just that slowly and incrementally creates uh, everlasting change. And they're actually able to discover more about themselves and be more honest and vulnerable through that process. Is that a real thing? Can you use that in the clinical environment where you're like this, uh, if someone can identify with their wounded inner child, uh, then they're able to regulate themselves faster through that? Yeah, I think that is a real thing. And, you know, part of what you're describing is you know, if you look at that from sort of the neurobiological perspective, part of what you're describing is taking a unpredictable, extreme, and um, sort of overwhelming stressor, which from the past, mm-hmm. and you're turning it into a repetitive, controllable, moderate stressor. Got and it. So that's actually what healing that that's what positive therapeutic experience is. So like one positive therapeutic approach that people have used is uh, similar to what you were talking about is if people start to write about their traumatic experience. And so they control when they write, they control what parts of it they write about. They control when they stop writing about it because it feels too much. And then they come back to it again. And so what they're doing is they're controlling the dosing, and spacing of this revisiting process that really takes a sensitized system and little by little by little by little makes it more regulated. And you describe the same thing. If you sort of, it's it's using a different mechanism, but it, it creates the same internal state. Yeah. I've got this, I, I have this conceptualization that I was a wounded child. And when I think about what plausibly went on, it activates me a little bit and then I disengage from that. I, I sort of go, oh, I understand it, but I back off and then I come back to it again, back off, come back to it again. And it's this process. All, all positive trauma therapies involve some aspect of revisiting in a way where you get an increasing sense of agency, of control, uh, and, and what was once overwhelming starts to become more tolerable. And then ultimately, you develop mastery over it. Yeah. And and it's uh, again, it's this is a neurobiological process that we've studied in a lot of other models in animals and humans. That if we're looking at modulating the activity of these core regulatory networks with a drug, that's what we call tolerance, mm-hmm. right? So you give, if, if you take these core regulatory networks and let's say dopaminergic systems and we give them somebody cocaine, if we give them cocaine and it activates that system, but we give them the same moderate dose of cocaine at the same times every day, pretty soon they develop tolerance and they yeah. don't have any response to cocaine. But if you give them the same amount of cocaine over a 24 hour period, 
but you give it in sort of unpredictable but high doses, right? They get sensitized, and after a week or so, you give them a dose of cocaine and they'll have a seizure. Yeah. And so it's just, it's it, that whole phenomenon of providing either a sensitizing pattern or a tolerance-inducing pattern are very much re- related to uh, the therapeutic process and healing from trauma. Beautiful. See, that's that's one thing I wanted to touch on. Uh, is it safe to say that that is heading towards post-traumatic growth or post-traumatic wisdom? Exactly. Right. It's, and and yeah. so that capacity to be regulated enough, and, and part of that's related to what you and I have talked about a lot before, state-dependent functioning, right? So when you're dysregulated, big parts of your cortex are just inefficiently available. And when you feel safe and regulated, lots of your cortex is open. Now, the cortex is the most uniquely human part of our body. You know, if you look at the entire body, every organ in the body, the part of us that has the most unique human DNA expressed is the cortex, particularly the frontal cortex. And, and so, but if it's shut down, all of those unique human capabilities, reflection, anticipating the future, really creative, abstract cognition, all of that's inefficient. But the more regulated you get, the more you can be reflective, the more you can be wise, you can have good perspective, you can, you can be, you know, you can express those unique human attributes that we label humane mm-hmm. and you can be altruistic and you can understand just it's it, it's a gift but the reality is just as you said now that this ability to sort of be have post-traumatic wisdom means that you've cal- calmed down that system enough so that your cortex is open for for business it's open for reflection oh yeah for you to be wise there's this quote, knowing your partner's childhood trauma is a love language. Is there something more important than having a loving relationship, feeling seen and heard in that? I, I you know, <clears throat> I don't think there is. I mean, I, I think that even if you have a really good therapist and then you go home and nobody else in your world understands you. And it's like, you know, as you, and we've talked about this before, that the brain changes with iterative repetitions, you know, yep. lots of repetitions. So even if you have the best therapist on the planet and uh, you get an hour with that person once a week, that's not enough repetitions of this good stuff to make a lot of enduring change. You need, ideally, you know, a partner, you need a boss who understands this a little bit, you, mm. you need friends that kind of are going to give you space and be supportive. And this is why therapeutically, when we do our work, we spend a lot of time trying to engage the people in somebody's life and, and, uh-huh. and teach them. You know, we say, you know, Billy's not a bad kid. This is why Billy does this. And, and so the teacher will treat Billy differently. The grandparents are going to be different. They'll have more reasonable expectations. The parents are going to uh, better understand the child. And so over the course of a week, you have dozens and dozens and dozens of these little opportunities for 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 that kind of moderate activations that we were talking about that lead to health. Whereas yeah. if you only do that once a week, it's going to take forever. I mean, think about this. I mean, this is, I always, but now, you know, we're talking about changing the brain, right? That's what therapy is doing. Absolutely. Yep. The easiest part of the brain to change is the cortex. And that's mm-hmm. the part of the brain that, that mediates, that controls speech and language. Now, imagine how long it would take me to learn Spanish, assuming I don't know Spanish, if I went and tried to learn Spanish once a week for 45 minutes. Yeah. And then the entire rest of the week, I didn't hear Spanish. I didn't read Spanish. I got no Spanish. I I would never learn Spanish. Mm -hmm. I'd learn how to say, uh, you know, one more beer, please. (laughs) Poor (laughs) fool. that's what i'd learn you know but that would be it yeah and and i think that that's what we need to realize is that we're talking about changing a part of the brain that's deeper or parts of the brain that are deeper which means they're harder to change yep and we're talking about doing it with you know once a week which i again i think that that's a big ask 
for therapists and for the person going to therapy. That's mm-hmm. why people, like you said, there's nothing more powerful than having somebody who's with you mm-hmm. who can give you these tiny little healing doses of, you know, rupture and repair. Because you know there's going to be rupture. Exactly. And, and, but, but because they love you Important. and they're present, there's going to be repair. And that's kind of what leads to healing, these, these literally thousands of these little ruptures and repairs. That's beautiful. The more ruptures and repairs you've had, the more efficient you become at that repair process. And that's where, I mean, coming from a a background where I didn't have much repair in my childhood, you know, and I did notice and a lot of my patients I've heard uh, when you don't have that, when you're growing up, you're going to really struggle with that in your love life. So there's going to be, there's going to come a time where you fall in love and you really care about someone. But when you go through that rupture, you don't know how to repair, you know, and that's right. where over time, if if you're lucky enough, um, if your partner is open enough to understand your trauma, understand that you might be that way you are because of something terrible that you experience in your life. I think over time going through that and then being compassionate, and obviously you having um, you being motivated to grow and change through that process, having a growth mindset through understanding, OK, this was done to me, but how can I turn this into something that can make me the best version of myself? That's when over time, I really feel like there's there's no limit to it. And then that leads me to the next question. So how does regulation look different for different types of trauma experiences? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> different people kind of develop preferences for different forms of regulation. Okay, and it it probably emerges from the way in which they were experiencing stress or distress or trauma when they're little. So, if you're an 18 month old and you're in a household where there's an overwhelmed parent and she's in a a, a, viol- a relationship with a guy who's violent, and you do an 18 month old fight or flight equivalent, which is to cry, you know, because they can't really fight off anything and they can't yeah. flee because there's, you know, there's nowhere to go. They're eight, you know, so that, that adaptation has to work by proxy. You have to have, you cry to get your caregiver to feed you, flee with you, fight for you, all that stuff. But if when you cry, nobody comes because she's preoccupied with this guy and and ultimately your crying irritates this guy and he comes and beats the hell out of you, you yeah. learn that, that the fight or flight response isn't going to help me out here. So you learn to use dissociation, which is to disengage from the external world and basically prepare your body for potential injury, to just literally be invisible, get through it. Uh, and, and, a lot, and a lot of the younger kids that come from backgrounds where there's significant trauma, they will have this weird robotic presentation in the clinic. Like if you do medicine, they'll come in and a lot of kids, when you bring a needle out, they're like, oh my God, they freak out. And some kids, they'll just put their arm out and it's almost creepy how robotic they are. And you're like, this isn't a good sign. Uh (laughs) And what that is, is it's typically because they're using dissociation. And so that's a regulatory mechanism that you will use if you perceive that you're in an inescapable, unavoidably painful or threatening situation. And again, if you have to do that again and again and again and again, that response pattern becomes sensitized, which means it's overactive and overly reactive. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if as you, let's say that you were exposed you know, you were old enough to run away and hide. So everything went well until you're four or five and then mom got in a bad relationship and this guy scared you because he yelled at mom. And so you'd run away and hide in, in your bedroom. And then as you got a little bit older, it, when he would yell at mom, you'd stick up for mom and you'd fight back. And so you develop a sensitized fight or flight response and you end up going to school and you're hypervigilant and people call you ADHD and so th- your coping mechanism, what regulates you is like to rock, to run, to swim, to kind of be motor- motorically 
some out of sensory regulating and that drives everybody crazy. Right. And yeah. because, and so they'll put you on medication or whatever. Exactly. And, and so different histories, that's why the question, what happened to you ends up becoming important, not just what happened, but when did it happen? And, and were there other people around to help buffer you? And so when you take a good history, the current presentation, as I, we were talking about before, seems pretty obvious. Oh, yeah. And, and But otherwise, it's a mystery, right? You know, one of the interesting things that we've been doing is we've been working with primary care clinics and doing a series of presentations about trauma for uh, primary care clinics in uh, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how many of them have trauma-related manifestations that they have no idea are related to trauma, you know, yeah. headaches, GI symptoms with no or, or origin, fainting, syncope of no, you know, unknown origin, exactly. you know, all, all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's exactly what you're asking about now is that these are manifestations of regulatory mechanisms that were adaptive in the moment, mm-hmm. but now are, are not adaptive for this child. That's, that's and, important. Because you're, yeah. what you're saying is these are finely honed skills that they learned in order to survive. But then once they may be out of that situation many years down the line, what was adaptive became maladaptive at that point. Exactly. But then that leads me to my next question. In psychiatry, we use the DSM and we, we treat a lot of different manifestations. But how often are we just treating trauma responses? Well, you know, if you look at the data from a couple of different big studies, uh-huh. They would suggest that uh, at least 40% I of kids that come into a conventional mental health clinic have some trauma-related confound, whether it's the causing the primary presentation or it's influencing the constellation of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly, you know, again, once you start to ask the history of these kids, you're going, oh. This kid's got a resting heart rate of 120, and he's in foster care, and he's had five different placements in the last four years. And I, you know, you can check the box for ADHD, but this looks a lot like PTSD to me, right? Beautiful. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about later down the line. Let's talk about chronic disease. So one of the biggest blessings as a family medicine resident, we work in the clinic, we work in the ER, we work on the hospital floors, we work in the ICU. And I've, I've treated a lot of chronic disease. A lot of the presentations we get in the hospital are really just acute on chronic exacerbation, something that's been going on for a long time. But what I'm starting to realize is, is the way someone grew up, um, their childhood, what may have happened to them, it seems connected to the chronic disease presentation of that 50, 60-year-old. So I just want to ask you, like, how much of chronic disease do you think is connected to this? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And... There are people who would argue that, again, if you look back at the history of so many of these folks, that at least in half of them, there is a significant component of uh, chronic stress, distress, and trauma that's influencing the way their immune system is working, the way their autonomic nervous system is working, and influencing whatever the organ system is that you're looking at. And, you know, we, if you look at people that have classic PTSD that they got as adults, their morbidity and mortality curve has shifted 15 years to the left. Yeah. And so if you had the genetic, whatever circumstances you had, whether it's a combination of genetics and experience that leads to heart disease, and then you superimpose history of trauma, it just means you're going to have more severe symptoms and you're going to express them earlier and you're going to die from them earlier. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's it's a major contributor to healthcare presentation. And I think that it's your generation that's going to finally figure out how to integrate that into our systems. Because right now, as you well know, you could probably half the physicians you talk to about this, they kind of look at you like you're nuts. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and then there's some that have heard about it and they're they're not, you know, and they'll give you the lecture about causality versus correlation and which is, like, you know, you know that, that you know that it's increasing risk. You're not saying it causes it. You're knowing, yeah. but it's contributing to the presentation. 
And we've already spoken about the ACEs on this podcast so much, so most of our yeah. listeners know exactly what it is, uh, adverse childhood experiences. If you have more than six ACEs, uh, the life expectancy decreases by 20 years. And there's a lot of theories yeah. on how this could happen. Obviously, uh, people with significant trauma, they may ha- develop an adverse relationship with their with food, with the way they eat, or they could have an adverse relationship with themselves or their body or how they're coping with those things. They're more likely to abuse alcohol, more likely yeah. actually... I'd say greater than 75% of the patients that I admit to the hospital for alcohol withdrawal or like alcohol related complications, the grand majority have PTSD. They all went through something and it hasn't been processed. It's powerful. And another thing I've noticed, uh, people in healthcare are starting to wake up and understand that, okay, when something happened early in childhood and now they're developing, you know, certain signs and symptoms that we have a hard time explaining, it's almost... It makes sense. It's starting to make more sense than it used to. And I, I'd say my generation's very, very interested in in your work, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's work, Dr. Patricia Rush's work, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton's work on epigenetics. I'm really grateful because as a med student, I was learning from Dr. Rush and I was learning about you before I had met you. And these things have significantly impacted my ability to treat patients, to be able to be compassionate towards them, to understand, to ask the question, what happened to you? I just want you to know that it is making a difference. It's pretty, well, pretty I love cool. to hear that. Well, That's the cool thing is, as you grow up it, it further into your professional career, you're going to have a lot of influence and teach other people. And I, I really think that the trajectory of integrating these learnings into uh, healthcare practice is just going to get better and better and better. And, it, you know, the good news is that that's just going to lead to better care for clients. You know, patients are just going to get healthier. Lead to policy changes that that help prevent some of these things, which is, I think is the really big part of this is that ultimately we have to go, all right, where does this come from? It comes from poverty and it comes from racism and it comes from uh, inequities, economic inequities that are in this last 10 years have become absurd. And, and so ultimately we you know there's an interconnection between all of these things yes and the physical health of people in a community in a society and i think that the capacity of people like you to be able to sort of use multiple lenses to see the interconnectedness is ultimately going to lead to some really good problem solving and and solutions that can make things better i think that's where i'm struggling currently um as i can see this from a broader a broader lens. Uh, what I've realized is uh, health equity, you know, and like poverty. So you start getting more into that political arena when you start talking about maternity leave. I, I guess it's political. I, I really don't know. But the struggle that I'm having now is, you know, I notice different area codes have different life expectancies because people don't have the same access to education and resources. Um, and then you kind of look at America and how they don't give paid maternity leave really ever. Um, and you know, mothers don't get to spend time with their children and that's just not going to lead to better regulation for that child or the mother. Um, and then you start thinking, okay, well, one of the most beautiful things I learned from you is like, if you want to look at the outcomes of a child, look a hundred years prior to, uh, that child even being conceived and see what's, what systems are set in place. But Dr. Perry, the things I'm realizing now is the systems that are set in place seem to be failing us. So what what's your advice? I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, I, and I think a part a big part of this, I always think that meaningful change comes from awareness and insight. It's kind of what we really said earlier that listen, if people know the mechanism, then they understand, you know, there's there's a rational ra- a reason to act in a certain way. And I think that part of what we we have to do is to the degree that we can, we have to continue to educate our colleagues and people that we are in our sphere of influence about the fact that our systems are inevitably going to be the product of thinking from 40 years ago and influenced by thinking from 100 years before that. And that because of that, organizations and institutions in the United States are largely a reflection of the values and the efforts to maintain power for people who were white 
and privileged. And and that until we dismantle that, we're never going to really be able to have organizations and systems that serve everybody. Um, But this is this enters into the arena of politics. People get so defensive about that. And they, they act like you're talking about like democracy is the devil or whatever. And like, no, we're, we're just trying to help you understand that, you know, if you, again, what happened to us? Yeah. That's where history comes in. The original constitution, people could vote if you were white and you owned land and you were a man. And so the way things work now, you have to understand history. And that's what I think we need to keep telling people. It's all right. If you want to, it's it's a good thing understanding how the brain develops. It's a good thing understanding how the post office developed. It's a good thing yeah. understanding how you know the, the VA system developed. It didn't develop because they were trying to care for veterans. You know why the VA system developed? The VA system was developed because rich white people did not want disfigured individuals in the same hospitals ah. that. They were in. They were horrified by people walking around with their face blown off and their limbs gone. And they they didn't they wanted they didn't want to feel guilty about sending off their youth to war. So we created the VA system to take all those sick people that were disfigured and put them in a different healthcare system than ours. That's why the VA system was developed. Oh man, I didn't and even know that. Love talking with it. It's fun. Absolutely. And I'd add to that, we just recently changed something in our system about the GFR, the glomerular filtration rate. They used to label African-American GFR and non-African-American GFR. And if you if you look at the labs, the African-American GFR is always estimated higher. So they've eliminated that finally. And that's Something that's very important because if the GFR is estimated higher for African-Americans, they're going to get care for uh, chronic kidney disease later. They're going to yep. get uh, tra- exactly. access to transplants later. And they've basically shown that that was just done because of racism and that they need to get rid of that. You know, So I think that's a beautiful way to kind of bring up your point where you're talking about where did the system come from? How did things develop and how do we kind of get rid of these things so we can get some type of health equity? And it is possible. It is possible. We just have a long way to go before we get there. What would you say to a young physician who's trying to navigate the world of childhood trauma and its impact in medicine? I think the, the, the one important piece is to just always be curious about the person that is in front of you. Just be curious about them. Don't be judgmental. Just be curious. You know, because a lot of times you're going to be tired and you're going to have be you're going to get the pressure to do high volume work and run people through and they're going to want, you know, they're going to have a stickiness to them because they they want they want to talk with you and they want to feel connected. And just, you know what, to the degree that you can let that go, let your schedule go, be present fully with these people and they're going to get they're going to teach you a lot. Okay. And and a lot of what they'll teach you is about the hard things that they've, they've gone through. Say a child reveals to you during the visit their trauma, um, and it's either sexual abuse, the parents are in the room. How do you specifically approach this? Because I know you're a world expert at this stuff. Like, what's the advice you would give to a doctor like myself? Well, I always want to make sure that, it, particularly if the parents are also in the room, is uh, I want to make everybody feel safe enough to be able to tell me or talk to me. And so I will, I'll make space for the child to talk with the child. I'll make space to talk with the adults. Uh, and then I'll bring people back together. Uh, and, you know, I, I just think, again, it's one of those things that when this does come up, you kind of have to throw your 20 minute appointment schedule out the window. That happens. Right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, you just have to go, all right, I, I got to do a little more work here. And this is where you kind of rely on your colleagues. And th- yeah. this is the beauty of having good relationships within a clinic and a clinical setting that has the same ethic, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you, there'll be times when you cover for somebody because they got into it. There's some issue that came up. And so as long as we take care of each other, we can do a better job taking care of, of these families and kids. But it takes time. And it... And it, it um, the the mere fact that they brought it up with you means that you've been able to make them feel safe. Mm -hmm. 
And the last thing you want to do is uh, sort of, you know, dash their hopes. Mm -hmm. You want to continue to make them feel safe by giving them the time and the space to tell their story. Um, and that's, so that's my, that's my advice. And that's why we, the way we do our clinical work, you know, sometimes we'll spend a whole afternoon with one family. Uh, and then sometimes, you know, we may not see it, you know, we'll, we'll call a family and say, Hey, are you doing okay? And mm -hmm. they'll say, yeah, so you don't, you don't need to come in. Just listen, if anything comes up, call us. We know it's a lot kind of a pain to drive all the way in. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. So we, we try to be really flexible with how we manage our time. I got you. No, thank you. Thank you. That's that's great advice. And I will be taking that to heart. Dr. Bruce Perry, man, I, I love you. I appreciate you. I'm so grateful for the work that you do. <laughs> thank uh, you please, so much. please continue doing what you're doing. And you are inspiring the future generation of physicians. What happened to you? I'm so grateful for this piece of work. And I hope that well, everybody when you finish it, have me back on. We can talk about it. Absolutely. We will. We will. A hundred percent. I right. can guarantee that. There you have it, folks. I hope you're leaving this one feeling med-spired. If you learned something new, or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars on iTunes. And give this video a huge thumbs up. It really helps us grow this channel. Thank you. Medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization. The more you help us grow, the more people we're able to help. Let's make a commitment together and attempt to be the best possible version of ourselves no matter what life throws at us, mentally, physically, and spiritually. As always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.